Life Christian Centre is a church located in the city of Adelaide. It is made up of people from different backgrounds and walks of life who have been transformed through a relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us online at www.life-church.com.au Dr. Adam Meyer. Well, it's a privilege to have uh, Adam with us today. Uh, he's like a part of the family here at Life Christian Centre. In my view, he's one of the great speakers of our nation. Uh, and he is that for quite a number of reasons. One of those reasons is he's got a great sense of humour. And I know you're going to enjoy the message. But more than that, he has this incredible way of bringing deep truths in a simple way that we can all understand and be impacted by it. And above all else, he has a passion to see people restored. People that life has been difficult, broken um, uh, through the circumstances of life. Uh, he has a ministry towards restoration to be able to restore the human soul. I know you're going to be blessed by the word today. I know it's going to speak to all all of us today. So would you give him a big Life Christian Centre welcome as he comes to share the word. Amen. Knowing that there's another service coming and knowing the danger with this message that it goes too long, I'm not going to be funny. <laughs> We're just going to get straight into it. I want to talk to you about faithful discipleship in Babylon. Disciples that thrive in a contradictory culture. When... Um, uh, Martin Luther was doing his ministry through the Reformation. He termed the struggle that was facing the church the Babylonian captivity of the Christian church. Um, he was battling a church culture that was obscuring the grace of God. Culture is a very powerful thing. Um, we become what we are one day at a time. We um, get together and make great big decisions from time to time, but that's not character, that's a moment. What you are and what you become, you build it one day at a time, one choice at a time, one act of obedience or disobedience at a time. You become what you are. No one who looks in the mirror and says, I need to lose 20 kilograms, say, I wonder what I ate to do that. Well, you did that a lot of times for that to be a problem, and it'll take some time to undo it because you became what you were one breakfast, one lunch, and one dinner time at a time over an extended period of time. That's how, that's how character comes. As a result, culture is a significant factor in what we become. And I guess over the past years, I've now been, uh, I'm alive longer than you think. I'm 73 years old, and the, I've been following in Jesus and preaching for about the last 50-odd years. And the reality is that Australia has changed a lot in 50 years. And it's not really heading in a really good direction, other than the advent of widespread um, air conditioning. The, the rest has kind of not been going so well. <laughs> Melbourne's undergone some profound changes in my lifetime. There was a time if you went back 100 years, 75% of Melburnians would be in church on a Sunday morning. That is not the truth today. There was a time when I was a child, just coming to my lifetime, shops were closed on a Sunday because Sunday was a day of rest and worship, which meant that people didn't think about going to the football. No one would even have imagined putting a football match on a Sunday, let alone playing it on a Good Friday. You just couldn't imagine that happening. You couldn't even hire a tennis court in our area on a Sunday afternoon because you weren't supposed to be playing tennis. 
When it came to public speech, the way people spoke on TV, when TV started in 1956, my parents were the first ones in our street to buy a TV set. You could watch TV as long as it was on. It started at five o'clock in the afternoon, went off with a minister doing a devotion for you at the end of the day at about 10 o'clock at night, because everybody, good people were in bed by 10.30 at night, every night. And we had a minister close the TV station down. It used to be called Epilogue. Even my even our own Lutheran minister got a chance to do that himself. When it came to the way people spoke in public, swearing, filthy language, you would never put that in a TV program. And even when it came to the news, they wouldn't use the word adultery in the news because children might be watching. You wouldn't want to say a word like that in the news if you had children listening. The whole issue of pornography, <laughs> you couldn't have found pornography in Melbourne without a private detective, you just couldn't find it. The reality is that marriage and divorce were taken very seriously in my childhood. And culture used to play some role in encouraging people to worship, to be a person of faith, uh, to, to, for family stability. It really encouraged respect for the Bible. I remember those days. I remember vacation Bible school being run in our government primary schools as a kid. The Baptist minister would come in, run a, an after-school vacation Bible school, and everybody promoted it, thought it was a wonderful thing. Today, they'd put you in jail for proposing an idea like that. Now, all of that's a distant memory, even for me, but there'll be some of you sitting here saying, I, don't, I, don't, I never lived in a world like that. No, you didn't, because culture is changing. The reality is that we, are all, that we are all in Australia involved in a cultural drift, and it's not in a healthy direction in terms of trusting God, believing the Bible, and creating stable, God-honoring relationships. And when that happens, we can drift with it. Um, you are influenced by your culture. Question is, how much are you influenced by your, influenced by your culture? I grew up in a home where my mum and dad read the Bible around the table every night, and it had an impact on me. It meant that I don't remember a time when I didn't believe the Bible. I don't remember a time when I didn't go to church, because we always did. Didn't stop me, however, from being... Um, a, a very naughty boy, uh, didn't stop me from being arrested for um, larceny of petrol, milking petrol out of a police car, and then having, having to have my Lutheran minister come and explain to the judge what a good boy I really was at the core of it all. Didn't stop me stealing my lunch from the university cafeteria, because while culture has an impact, something better happen deep in the heart of every human being if we're really going to encounter the power and the grace of God. And if ever there would be an example of uh, the power of culture to not change people, you find it in Israel. You see, under Moses, Israel was a theocracy. And everything about Israel's life from Moses onward was designed to create a culture in which every aspect of the culture was supposed to help people love God, believe God, understand God, and create a community that demonstrated God. How did that work out? Not so well. They tried hard. The, the, under Moses, the tabernacle was first built. And then under David and Solomon, the temple was then built, and every element of that area of worship was designed to teach you something about God. 
All of Israel lived under the law, not just the Ten Commandments, although they were the, they were the ten biggies, the, the 600 and something laws of the old covenant. Then there was the priesthood. The way the priests dressed, what they did, how they performed their ministry was intended to explain to you that without the shedding of blood, there'll never be the forgiveness of sins. Then came the five, uh, the five sacrifices or offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship offering, the sin offering, the guilt offering, all those offerings designed to help you understand how you connect with God when life has gone wrong. And then the feasts, a nation in which... Every facet of the year reflected something about where they were in their relationship with God. Start out the year with Passover, then 50 days later you got Pentecost, and then towards the end of the harvest you got the Feast of Weeks with the Great Day of Atonement. And in Australia, which has still got a little bit of a Christian memory, we still get Good Friday, we get Easter Sunday, and we still get Christmas Day. So we've got just those remnants of the idea of the feasts, but Israel, they were immersed in it. 365 days a year they were immersed in culture. What do we learn from that? We learn from that that culture can play a profound role and it needs to play and it should play a profound role, but it doesn't guarantee that you'll have faith. It doesn't guarantee that you'll have love for God. It doesn't guarantee that you will be obedient, that you'll want to obey God, that, that you understand holiness doesn't guarantee you understand righteousness. It doesn't even understand that you doesn't guarantee you even understand justice. Something has to happen inside the heart for all of that to take place. But you get all of that, the culture is really, really helpful. Now the tragedy for Israel was that they became an embarrassment to God. It's a terrible thing when people who were intended to be like the window to God's character and nature, which is what the whole point of Israel was, a window for the world to see the kingdom of heaven. And uh, they became an embarrassment to God. Under King David, Israel reached its pinnacle. Under Solomon, they built the temple and it was wonderful and then things begin to drift. After Solomon, the nation divides into the ten northern tribes, which are still called Israel, and Judah and Benjamin and some Levites around Jerusalem, the southern kingdom. And over the next hundreds of years, they've just become an embarrassment to God, the divided kingdom. In Isaiah 52, the prophet Isaiah says this, The name of God is blasphemed because of you a people who are presenting to the world exactly the opposite of what they were called to present. God sends them prophets to the ten northern tribes. They get Elijah, Elisha, Amos, Hosea, Jonah, Micah, but they don't listen. If you're a prophet, you're more likely to end up dead than you are to end up with a big classroom of people wanting to do what you say. And as a response, shock of all shocks, God actually does what he says he would do. And he said, if you will not honour me, you become an embarrassment to me, I will remove you from the land. Uh, and a lot of people think, well, that's very Old Testament. Just read the seven letters to the churches in the book of Revelation and you'll find that God hasn't changed a lot. He is not excited when people who are called to be his representatives are an embarrassment, both to themselves and to himself. Jesus did take the first, he says, if you, if you don't repent, I'll come and remove your lampstand from its place. He says that to the 
church at Ephesus. And the reality is that um, they became an embarrassment and God removed them. In 722 BC, Assyria captured the 10 northern tribes of Israel and under the prophet Jeremiah, he prophesied what was happening to them. He said, I give you a certificate of divorce and I am sending you away. God divorced the 10 northern tribes and they were gone and they've never been restored. In the capital city of Jerusalem, things weren't going that much better. Here you had Judah and there under the leadership of that uh, remaining portion of Israel, you get Judah, you get the Benjamin, Benjaminites, you get the Levites, and they continue on, but they have a series of godly kings and ungodly kings. Sometimes it's going well, sometimes it's going really bad, and they get a group of prophets. God sends prophets, and the prophets begin to explain to them, you need to hear me, because if you don't uh, respond to my call, I'm going to do something about that. And so the prophets to Judah deliver their painful prophetic warnings. To them you get Obadiah, Joel, Isaiah, Micah, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And they are prophesying. It matters that you honour God. They say, well, God won't do anything too much about us. He really loves us. Don't you realise that as a city we are removable? Don't you realize that Jerusalem is the center, the capital city of God's thinking? Here is the temple and one of their cries when the prophets would come and warn them. You have a call to holiness and obedience. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. Their response to that was, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Nothing will ever happen to Jerusalem because it's the place where the temple is. God would never allow anything to happen to Jerusalem. That's what you think. Not true. In 606, God fulfills the prophetic promises. Nebuchadnezzar comes to Jerusalem and besieges it for the first time. He takes things out of the temple he takes captive a number of the teenagers and of the royal household and transports them back to Babylon with the view of turning them into really good little Babylonians. Um, Israel continues to mess up, so in 598, Nebuchadnezzar returned and he further subjugated Judah. They did not listen still to the prophetic warnings and so in 587, Nebuchadnezzar returns to Jerusalem and destroys the temple. Solomon's temple was wiped off the face of the earth. The city was destroyed. The walls were pulled down. It was total devastation. And into captivity, when a group of the brightest and best teenagers of the royal household of Judah... And they were taken with a view to training them in the language and the culture of Babylon and totally reorienting their worldview to enhance the administration of Babylon. And Daniel is one, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are three others. These four teenagers find themselves bundled with, with a lot of others off from Jerusalem and they will never see their capital city again. They will never worship in the temple again. 
They will never experience another Passover, another Pentecost, another Feast of Weeks or another Day of Atonement because all of that related to the temple and the temple is gone. Their culture has been totally removed from them and now they will be immersed in a totally contradictory culture. The question is, how will they survive? The answer is, really, really well. They're going to do really well. These four boys are going to prosper in a totally contradictory environment and uh, that better be the case because many of the kids that we are raising in our world today are living increasingly in a contradictory environment and my concern as a pastor, what does it take to help disciples flourish when the culture is increasingly contradictory, critical of them? You could get almost anything on the news today except something positive about the Christian church. You could get uh, TV programs about almost anything but nothing positive about the Christian church. And every failure, do they love to take it and expand it and put it on morning, noon and night because we are not living in a culture that wants to nurture faith in Jesus, trust in the Bible. It is being... uh, contradicted at every level. Now these boys are about to be introduced to a foreign pantheon of deities and religious ideas and they're going to be required to undertake courses in things that in Israel would have been forbidden. In Israel, part of the law was you do not delve into the religions of foreign countries. We don't want, God said, I don't want you looking into it. Don't become an expert on Buddhism. Don't become an expert on Shintoism. Don't become an expert on witchcraft. Don't become a, I don't want you looking into that, but suddenly they're going to be immersed in it. And now they're going to have to undertake courses on divination and astrology, things that were forbidden to them in their former life. Now they're going to be inculcated in a culture in which the eating, the drinking, the worshipping, the thinking, the education is a serious challenge to everything that they were called to walk in. The question is, how will they survive? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are really fine examples of what it takes for believers to flourish when your culture is increasingly poisonous. And that's exactly the culture in which we are increasingly raising our kids. I'm a father, I have four children, I have 12 grandchildren, and increasingly I'm aware of how favoured I was in my childhood and how different the world in which my grandchildren are growing up uh, is actually going to be and already is. How can I support them? What do I need to help them embrace if they're going to flourish in the future years? Because what shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and then lose his own soul? I don't know about you, but I have found myself... Every time somebody important dies, someone notable dies, I find the first question I ask myself, I find my heart... Lord, where was this person with you? I asked that when Prince Philip died uh, last year when he passed away. My first thought for Prince Philip was, Lord, did he really know you like the Queen does? Because the Queen's a real believer. She's been a real believer all her life. She's followed Jesus all her life. 
What about you? And um, I was fascinated to learn that Prince Philip, in fact, had got himself deeply committed to the revival of Anglican ministers. He had a good friend of his in the Anglican church who was using um, crown, some of the crown facilities at uh, where uh, Prince Philip was living to revive Anglican ministers who'd lost their way. He had a passion for revival. Didn't come out in any of the ways, you know, he talked or you, you saw him present it. But I had good... I had good faith, good confidence. I'll, I'll see old Prince Philip up there. You know, I'll have a few questions for him. I saw what Netflix did with him. I just wonder if he, how he felt about that. I'll ask him one day. When Shane Warne died a few weeks ago, i got to tell you I had exactly the same question. Oh, Shane. Will 708 wickets do much for you in heaven? How will you stand? Did you know Jesus, mate? After all of the great wins and all of the great fame and for Shane, where were you with Jesus? You see, there are things that go to the core of a disciple who flourishes even when the culture is contradictory. And I want to draw your attention to six things that we need to pay attention to in our own lives as things get more difficult or as things get more contradictory, the things we need to nurture in our children, the things we need to nurture in our grandchildren, the things we need to nurture in our church, because this is the, one of those cultures. A local church is intended by God to be a culture that supports faith, loving God. It can't produce it for you. Coming to church every Sunday can't do that for you if nothing's happened in here. Um, as Joe was saying before, what, what's going on in your heart? That's the, that's the big issue. But then if something's gone on in your, in your heart, culture is really helpful in strengthening and equipping and informing all of those things in the heart. And here are six things that it takes for a disciple to flourish in a contradictory environment. And Daniel is exhibit A. One of the great believers in the Bible who, as a teenager, was removed from supportive environments and spent the next 70, 80 years in a contradictory environment and never lowered his flag, not one time. Here's the first thing. Daniel saw his life in terms of the honour of God and the glory of God. That's how he saw his life in those terms. One of the challenges we face is when we see life in terms of our own comfort or success or development in life. It's all about me. Now, there's an old song in the old revivalist community of years ago, and it goes like this. Me, 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 me. There's a mansion there for me. If anyone's going to be happy over there, it's a me, 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 me. Now, that's too many me's for a disciple. It's not all about you. The reason you are alive is to get to know God and enjoy Him forever because God has a great plan. He's building a family for eternity and He's inviting you to be part of it. It's not primarily about you. It's primarily about Him and you get to be part of it. And Daniel understood that. 
So that in the midst of suffering, his big question was, why is this happening to me? Well, don't you realise this is no fun for us? No, I guarantee you, being, a, being an exile in Babylon was no fun. They had a thousand kilometre walk from Jerusalem to Babylon and they would never return. But he never saw his life primarily in terms of his own success, his own comfort, his own progress. He saw his life in terms of the glory of God. And I'll show you that in just a moment when we, when we watch him pray. And so here was the first element that allowed Daniel to prosper. The first one was this. He knew the word of God so well. He didn't just know the word of God. He knew the spirit of God's word, so that in a contradictory culture, there were moments he was going to have to compromise. And I know people think, oh, compromise, a Christian should never compromise. Listen, in a contradictory culture, a Christian often has to compromise. If you have to work on a Sunday, you have to work on a Sunday, and you've got to compromise. You can say, I just know that I just won't work, I'll lose my job. Well, you can do that. But thank God that the Sabbath issue was an issue for Israel, not an issue for the church. So on, as Paul says in Romans 14, one man honours one day above another. Another man esteems every day alike. Let every man be fully convinced in his own conscience. And if you have to work on a Sunday and you're a Christian, then you're going to have to find another day to connect with God's people and stir up your faith. And when this boy was transported into Babylon, there were a lot of things he didn't have any say over. He was about to have his name changed. They changed his name from Daniel, God is my strength, to Belteshazzar. That's not fun. Belteshazzar, they named me after a demon deity? Well, he knew he'd have to compromise with that. He, he didn't say, I, I, I refuse, you can't call me, no. Um, he had recognised that in that environment, the name, a, a rose by any other name would still smell sweet. Call me Belteshazzar if you have to. I just know who I am in here. He had to compromise on his name. He had to compromise on his education. Now, I know one of the responses increasingly in uh, countries where people love Jesus is they withdraw their kids and they, get, they homeschool. So I don't want my kids taught evolution and I don't want my kids under the influence of an ungodly teacher. And, and so they make that decision. And I'm not here to argue with that. I was a high school teacher uh, and I understand that the problems with that. And my daughter homeschools, it's just not a decision I ever made or would want to make. And this guy didn't refuse to get involved in the education system of Babylon because I'm a believer, I can't do that. Bible says I'm not allowed to look into witchcraft. No, he made a different decision. He had to compromise over the issue of his education because he wasn't living in a theocracy anymore. In a theocracy, you have to do that. When you're no longer in a theocracy, you have to survive in the culture that you are. He had to compromise on his education. And this was his compromise. I'll be better at understanding what you're teaching people than you are. And then I'll let you know where you missed the mark. And that was the decision I made. I was surrounded by evolutionary teaching in high school. I just decided I'd understand evolution better than any of the evolutionists did. And then I'd pull it apart in front of their eyes. I'd help kids not just uh, to 
survive their evolutionary teaching and it permeates virtually every area of the education process, I'll help them understand what their thinking is better than they do and then I'll put the light of God's word against it and I'll show them where there's a distinction. I'll use it to their benefit. And that's one of the, the challenges that Daniel had to make. But the only way you can do that is you've got to know the word of God. Because if you don't, you'll compromise in places that will cost you a lot. And he knew where he could compromise. He knew where he could not compromise. And he knew that when it got into the issue of worship, we had moved into a no-go zone. And he knew the meat they were putting on his plate had been dedicated to a demon god, and that's where he drew his line. He knew where to draw his line. And as a result, he drew his line and said, I'm not eating that stuff. But he did it with respect. He didn't, you know, get out a placard and start a, a rebellious movement in Babylon. Um, neither did Jesus run street marches in Jerusalem for the liberation of Israel. He just didn't see so that wasn't their approach. He took a very different approach. His approach was with respect and dignity to be asked for the opportunity to, to prove that uh, he could fulfill all of the call upon his life and honour God at the same time. And with the food issue, they gave him permission to do that. Later on, they didn't give him permission to do that. And then he had to step up and be willing to die for his faith. And he was. He ended up in the lion's den. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego ended up in a fiery furnace, both of them, because they knew there are points where you just can't compromise. Sorry, I just can't do that. And here I'm willing to die. And uh, increasingly... We're going to have to figure out where to draw that line. Um, how do we compromise? We're facing it now as counsellors and as preachers in Victoria since our government decided to make the, the idea that uh, a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction can actually find help in a church is an illegal thing now to do. So now we're facing a recognition that in the moving of our culture, where are we drawing the line? And how do we negotiate, negotiate that? <clears throat> and one of the keys is you've got to know the Word of God. And you've got to know not just the letter of the Word, you've got to know the spirit of the Word. Because the spirit of the Word is critical in honouring God. Because that's what it's all about. It's not just about a battle of ideas. There's a God at the back of my life and I want to honour him. Got to figure out where to compromise. The second thing is this. Engaged, he engaged with his city for good because he had heard the, the prophecy of Jeremiah about the destruction of Jerusalem. The prophet Jeremiah was big in Daniel's life. Daniel read the prophet Jeremiah relentlessly and he was friends with the prophet Ezekiel who was with him as a... Uh, an exile in Babylon. That's where Ezekiel was. And as a result, he was aware of what God's will for him was as a Babylonian citizen, as a member of the Babylonian community. Jeremiah, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Here's God's will. Build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. 
Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. In other words, Daniel, for the rest of his life, served in Babylon with a level of excellence. He was not resistant. He wasn't there to see if he could bring Babylon down. God had placed him there. I will now pray for the prosperity of this place. No, they're your enemy. No, no. You see, I'm not wrestling against flesh and blood. I'm wrestling against principalities and powers and spiritual wickedness in high places. These are just human beings. And I will serve them and I will love them and I will honour them and I will, give, I will give this community the very best I have to give. And as a result, served it with excellence. Let me ask you. Do you serve every day at your job, whatever that job is? And tonight I want to talk to men about finding purpose in life. A man without purpose is as lost as a goose in a hailstorm. Men were created for purpose, and when they've lost their purpose, they're lost as men. And tonight I want to talk to you men about men and their purpose. This man realised, I have a call of God on my life, I'm going to be the best at what I do he was so good. He was just like Joseph. See, Joseph had to, had, to, had to decide how he was going to behave. He rose to be the second in command to Pharaoh, but he had to realize where to draw the line. I can't have sex with my master's wife, even if it's a good career move. I cannot have sex with my master's wife. How shall I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Draw the line. He ended up in prison for two years over that. Was not a was not a good career move, and yet God used it to elevate him to the highest place in the land. When Esther, was she, when she was in her Persian captivity, it was against the law under a theocracy for her to marry anyone but a Jew. But she wasn't in a theocracy. Now her people uh, need to survive. And, and here's a woman who marries um, the, local, the local Persian, the king and then acts as a great saviour to her people. She had to compromise. She knew where to draw the line and where not to draw the line. And that's one of the great challenges that, uh, that believers face. And I guarantee this will result in some conversations. He said the word compromise. Yep, because it's part of the challenge that you face when you're not in an environment where you can do everything that you would like to do. Here's the third thing. Daniel related to all authority with dignity, with honour and with respect. Now, I've got to tell you, I can't preach on this one because I'm not very good at it. Uh, I'm not happy with Dan Andrews and I'm not happy with my government in Victoria. And so I murmur all the time and I'm, I'm, yet, I'm yet unsaved on this point. But I, I do need to know, I recognise it and I'm wrestling with it. I'm trying to like Dan and love him with my whole heart. Oh, Jesus, forgive me. <laughs> we'll move on. But a believer... A believer does the best they can wherever they are to treat every human being with the dignity, the honour and the respect that demonstrates you may not know who you are, but I know you're, you're a human being made in the image of God. And as a result, when I honour you, I honour your creator. Here's the, here's the next one. When accommodation is not possible, you, you are called to be faithful even under death and with Daniel and his three friends, that was not a platitude. And at the moment, in Australia, this is still, in many ways, um, a bit of a platitude. You are very unlikely to find your life threatened in Australia in 2022 
because of your profound commitment to, to honouring Jesus Christ. But that is not true in, in, in thousands of other places around the world and we have no idea um, if, I, if we had more time. If I could do a whole series on Daniel, I'd talk to you about the possibility of that coming in our direction. But if that, ever becomes, if that ever becomes part of what it means to be a Christian in Australia, be thou faithful unto death and I will give you a crown of life book of Revelation. Number five, you've got to have a clear and compelling theology of the character of God. And I have great fears about this. You see, one of the things that you, uh, you discover about Daniel, he had a deep sense of both the goodness and the severity of God. And for many Christians today, that's a lost idea. The goodness and the severity of God. The Apostle Paul will draw your attention to that in the book of Romans as he talks about the Jews and they're being broken off from the body of Christ because of their unbelief. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. You see, if you want to get a feel for Daniel's faith, it's not easy to find it because you do know this. He was a prayer and he ended up in the lion's den because he would not compromise on his prayer life. But if you read the prayer of Daniel in Daniel chapter 9, now you get an insight into the man's character. Because as a man prays, you see his heart, what he really believes. And there you see this man begin to pray, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away. And he says this, he says, you have fulfilled the words spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us this great disaster under the whole heaven. Nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. He understood. Oh, that wasn't just God went to sleep and Nebuchadnezzar rose to power and uh, God just didn't act. No, God raised Nebuchadnezzar. In fact, one of the themes that comes out in the book of Daniel over and over again, God gives power to whom he will and he takes it from people whom he will. And that they were experiencing what God had been pleading with them for hundreds of years. Now they're facing the severity of God. And one of the things that Daniel understood is what theologians call the unity of God's character. Do you understand the unity of God's character? Because here's the problem. God is awesome in every one of the facets of his character. He is absolute and eternal in every facet of his character. In his sovereignty, he is eternal. In his holiness, he is eternal. In his goodness, he is eternal. In his justice, he is eternal. He never lowers any of his perfections in order to cater for another. And yet, I think all over the body of Christ today, there are people who want to elevate one aspect of God's character, the goodness of God, the kindness of God, the mercy of God, and elevate that up so that he's, he's never really going, it's never really going to be a, a moment of justice. No one will end up going to hell. No one will finally be judged. No one will ever miss out on heaven. Why? Because God's so kind. He's so good. Well, that's what you think. Jerusalem, the temple of the Lord. Well... 
Behold the goodness and the severity of God. And this dude was living in the middle of it. And he understood what he was experiencing. He was experiencing the perfections of God's character as God did what he said he would do. And there's a great day of judgment coming when Jesus will do exactly what he said he will do. He will separate the nations. And there will be some to whom he will say, Come, you blessed of my Father. And there'll, some, there'll be some to whom he will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. And there, there is this lack of understanding the unity of God's perfections. That we, when we begin to exalt one of God's perfections above the other, we create a God of our own imagination. And then we give ourselves permission. Permission to disobey, permission to defile ourselves. But these boys were so clear on the perfections of God. They just made a decision they weren't going to defile themselves. Why? For his sake. Listen to his prayer. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favour on your desolate sanctuary. See the desolation of the city that bears your name. For your sake, my God, do not delay. Not, oh God, do you realise how miserable this is? I'd turn up quickly and do something of all of you. That's not his prayer. His prayer, Lord, it's your name is at stake. It's the glory of the Lord. The, word of the, the greatest promise the, the Bible has for the future of the world is that the glory of the Lord shall fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. If God's glory ever gets to, to shine, oh, you want to be there on that day. You want to see how awesome that will be. They understood that it's not just about me, it's about the glory of the Lord. And they had a clear and compelling view of the character of God. They never gave themselves permission to defile themselves because God was so forgiving it would all get washed away. Anyway, they lived with a sense of the holiness of God, the perfections of God. And they knew that was all mixed in with the grace of God. His perfections are from everlasting to everlasting. But they are, they are held in unity with one another. Don't pick one out that you like and create a God of your own imagination. And finally, they had a clear and compelling theology of where all of this is going to end up. They had a very clear and compelling theology of the end of life. And I'll read to you as I finish one of Daniel's great visions. These visions sustained him to stand against a contradictory culture because he was absolutely certain about where all of life would eventually end and about the one person he needed to please. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. In my vision at night I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven 
He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And all the nations and peoples of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Shane, my, my dearly brother, I watched you get many of those wickets. Where are you today? Because at the end of the day, wickets count for nothing. Money counts for nothing. Houses and reputations count for nothing. But Jesus is everything. One like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, all nations and all languages will serve him and his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. That is the God whom Daniel served. That was the vision he had of his future. Why would I bow my knee to you? Pretty soon I won't be here. I'm 73 years old. I've got it figured out. I don't have that much longer. I've already done 73. I'm doubt I'm going to make to 146. So I'm well over halfway there. Why would I bow my knee? Why would I give up the only certainty for, a, for dust and ashes? And by the grace of God today, I want to say to you, when disciples understand these six things, it doesn't matter what culture you put them in. They will flourish in that culture. And in Jesus' name, may this church flourish as a place where disciples discover the grace of God, the power of God, the fear of God, and an everlasting certainty that everything is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. I will never let him go. Father, I stretch out my hands today over this people. I pray over this church and the, and the ones they will disciple in the future. Let them become disciples like Daniel. Let them become disciples whose hearts are clear. They're living for the glory of God, blessing the city in which they live, treating people with dignity and respect, having a clear understanding of the awesome character that you are and knowing that in Christ our future is hidden. I pray a blessing upon this house today. Lord, let it prosper in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Will you stand with me? What a great word. Can I hear an amen? amen? It's an amazing word. We've been talking as a leadership team about, you know, our programs, just looking at everything that we do. And we just feel that there's a real gap in terms of just teaching and discipleship and, and, and getting stuck into the Word of God. And I think that that word certainly was timely and a real confirmation about what we've been talking about as a leadership team, because this generation needs the Word of God. Not, not just the sermons on Sunday morning are amazing, but what we need to go is a little bit deeper and understand not just the Word, know the stories, but understand the spirit of the Word. If we're going to interpret the spirit of the Word in, in, in the times that we're living in, we need to understand it and know it and study it. So what a powerful word because we want to be a Daniel in our generation. Can I hear an amen? We don't want to just be uh, affected by, by the culture. We want to we we change the culture that we, we're living in by the grace of God and for the glory of God. And so Lord, I just thank you for this word. Let it be a word in season for our hearts. Just walk out of this place saying, what are the things I need to change? What are the things I need to do to be able to be a Daniel in my generation? Look God, that's what we want to do. 
That's what we want to do, Lord God. So guide and lead us by your Spirit, I pray. Bless this congregation, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.